0: Join me now for the prayer of illumination. Let us pray. Lord, open your hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, 7 through 9, and 12 through 20. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave. Or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor when all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to moses you speak to us and we will listen but do not let god speak to us or we will die moses said to the people do not be afraid For God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. The word of the Lord.
1: Our New Testament lesson this morning continues in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be in the third chapter this morning, and we'll pick up reading on the second half of the fourth verse and read through the 14th verse of chapter 3. So listen now for Paul's word to the church and God's word to us on this World Communion Sunday. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I, Paul, have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord." For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first sermon I ever delivered was given in the spring of my senior year in college. I was invited to offer the word at our weekly student chapel service. And the topic I chose came from the heart of where my senior classmates and I were living just two months before graduation. We were all honing them patting them, feverishly mailing them out. We were literally pinning our hopes and dreams upon them. That Wednesday, I preached about resumes. Now, I honestly can't remember, but I suspect that the sermon text I used for that chapel service on that day was this same passage from Philippians. It makes perfect sense because... Paul clearly is talking about his own resume and his bona fides, his, uh, his things that he's so good at, the things that he has excelled in, all of it is impressive. Pharisees pursued excellence in every way, and Paul could hold his own with the best of them. A member of one of the most respected tribes of Israel. There was no question about his Hebrew pedigree. He was a zealot for righteousness, which was proven by his well-documented record of hunting Christians and one known for following even the most obscure covenant laws. If anyone had a reason to be proud of his or her resume, Paul had more. And then the surprise twist... Having hit the highlights of his amazing resume, having built the case for unparalleled respect and admiration, Paul rips it all up. Whatever I have accomplished, he said, whatever gains I have, I have come to regard them as loss, as trash, as refuse and rubbish, They do not matter, Paul says, because they were steps on a path that I no longer wish to travel. Last week, we talked about the one thing that Paul sought in life and ministry to know Christ, to share the mind of Christ, to have the love of Christ, and to know all of that as totally and completely as he could. Paul realized that his whole life, up until that moment when the risen Christ grabbed him by the collar on that road to Damascus, that all the time up until then, Paul had been pursuing other goals and other ends. But in that moment on the Damascus road, Paul found a new purpose, a purpose so attractive, so full of light, so brimming with hope that he left every past achievement and praiseworthy accomplishment behind, as if those things meant absolutely nothing anymore. And in one sentence, Paul not only summarizes that important moment, but he also explains how that moment has continued to orient him in every moment since and will continue to guide him in every moment to come. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. So I want to focus this morning on what that philosophy can and should mean for us as we seek that same goal to commit ourselves fully and passionately to knowing Christ as the primary end and purpose of our lives. And specifically, I want us to consider what it means to forget what lies behind. One thing that it most assuredly means is that if Christ is our goal, then we must somehow forsake the gains and the accolades that mean so much to the world. Little over a year ago, my college roommate, who was there to hear that first sermon so many years ago, was here in town on business and he had had a long day in the courthouse so I went over and met him for dinner in Charleston. His daughter is one year ahead of our oldest daughter Molly and she had started uh, her freshman year at Duke just the month before. And he knew that we would be getting into the full stress of the college admissions game And he said this, I I remember it in crystal clear letters as if it's emblazoned on me. He said, I wish I had better news for you, but this is going to be a really hard year. And he was right. I'll tell you that the stress that these kids go through in the college application process is incredibly intense. And it's all about the resume They are constantly comparing themselves to other students, looking at their test scores and how they line up, hoping that their extracurricular activities are enough to impress, and hoping that their recommendation letters are also enough to impress. It is an exhausting process, and it can be pretty demoralizing, because it feels like their entire self-worth is on the line. It's one of the first real experiences of the world because it just doesn't stop once we get into college. Most of you know that all too well. In fact, I was in the throes of the same kind of stress when I gave that first sermon. After that chapel service was over, I went back to my dorm room where I had already begun posting my job rejection letters on the wall. And I had a pretty good collection going already. Now, I did that ironically, attempting to find some humor and lightness in it. But those rejections were also very real, and I knew it. And what they said was that my resume, as hard as I had worked to build it up, was just not quite enough, at least for the paths that those jobs represented. What Paul wanted the Philippians to know is that the hard work we do along those paths and the pain we endure to follow those paths can, in some ways, be a big waste of time and energy. Paul had figured out that his own resume, as impressive as it was, had been aimed at a job that he no longer wanted. And it bore witness to a status that he no longer cared about. The world counted it all as gain, but Paul did not see it that way anymore. Now, the last thing I want to do is to devalue any accomplishments that anyone has made, because God can and does work through those. Many accomplishments that could be characterized as worldly, Prepare us for holy and sacred work that God really wants us to do. And I think it's important to remember that Paul himself never stopped striving. He never stopped climbing and working and straining toward his goal. What changed for Paul was the goal that he was striving to attain. Like Ebenezer Scrooge, Paul had a powerful supernatural experience that helped him to realize that in all the days up to that one, Paul had been laboring at the wrong kind of business, that he had been pursuing the wrong kinds of ends, and that in so doing, he had only been laboring to add links to a ponderous chain on his spirit. But then, thanks to a heavenly intervention, Paul was liberated from the bondage of confidence in the flesh. He was shown the way of the Spirit. He saw joy and light and hope and the opportunity for total fulfillment. But to find it, he had to forget what lay behind. But there was more to it than that. Paul would have us know that it is not just human achievements or worldly gains that we have to forget and leave behind. There are other chains that bind us. There are millstones of failure and disappointment that weigh us down. There is the bondage of the hurts we have suffered and the hurts that we have inflicted on others. Across the years, biblical scholars have debated about how Paul dealt with guilt and how much of his theology may have been rooted in and shaped by shame. Because Paul must have felt guilty about what he had done to the church. He had been the most ruthless Christian hunter there was, he had literally held the coats of the people who stoned Stephen to death, in some ways it's a miracle that Paul was able to discover so much joy and share so much love because a heart that has been burned once tends to have trouble loving again. Someone who has been betrayed has trouble trusting again. But somehow, Paul was able to forget those things as well, to somehow put all of that behind him so he could start fresh as a disciple of Christ. It invites us to consider the weights that we need to discard. What guilt have we been carrying around? What disappointments are holding us back? What secrets may we have stashed in the corners and closets of our consciousness only to know that they still seep out and darken our spirits or make us feel unworthy of love, unworthy of grace, unworthy of God? There is a fine line, Paul says, between guilt that points us to God and guilt that points us to death. The only thing that guilt or sorrow might be good for, Paul would say, is turning us back to God as the source of our being. Anything else is toxic and counterproductive. Even when Paul had to scold or reprimand his churches in his letters, he tried to navigate that line. For example, as he wrote to the Corinthians, even if I made you sorry with my letter, Paul wrote, I do not regret it. I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led you to repentance, for you felt a godly grief. A godly grief, Paul continued, produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief, worldly guilt, produces death. In other words, Paul does not want us to wallow in grief or guilt from our past because that strategy would have killed Paul and probably destroyed his ministry. Now, this probably goes without saying, but I will say it before I offer this illustration. I am no football player. But I think this is the same kind of thing that experts talk about when they say that NFL cornerbacks and safeties have to have a very short memory. Quarterbacks at that level are so precise and so talented that no defense is going to stop every pass. And sometimes those cornerbacks are going to get burned for a long touchdown. It's just the way that it is. But if those players dwelt on every mistake, if they held on to every failure, then they would be so burdened and worried that they would get burned constantly. They have to remember just enough of what happened to maybe keep it from happening again. But they also have to forget it so that they can engage the next play with confidence that they are not only good, but even invincible. Or as Paul would say, they have to forget what lies behind. They have to strain forward to what lies ahead and press on toward their goal. There's a story I've held on to for a long time that illustrates what I think Paul was feeling and what I think Paul wanted all the Philippians to feel. The classic movie Beckett tells the historical story of Thomas Beckett, a friend and confidant of King Henry II. While serving as the Lord Chancellor of England, Beckett was an enthusiastic partner in crime for the king. And by that, I mean they partied constantly. But still, as a public official who had to be conscience, conscious of his resume, Beckett always remained affiliated with the church. Whatever happened on Saturday night, Beckett was going to find a way to make it to church the next morning. It was a foundation that was even laid in his early years when he had studied, actually, to be a deacon in the church and had served as a servant in the house of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, this was an era in English history when relationships between the church and the crown were incredibly strained. The church didn't really support much of what the king was doing, and the king was growing quite resentful of that fact. So when the old Archbishop of Canterbury died, King Henry II saw a wonderful opportunity. He would elevate his close friend and fellow merrymaker, Thomas Beckett, to the post. And now, instead of fighting with the Archbishop, he could go to pubs with him. The plan, however, went immediately awry. As soon as Becket was ordained and installed into the church, his sense of identity unexpectedly and radically shifted. Almost immediately, Beckett began to leave his old life behind and forget his old ways and turn his face toward a new kind of life. And in one of the most powerful scenes of the movie, Beckett, who's played amazingly well by Richard Burton, is preparing himself to be elevated to the office of archbishop and he's doing so by divesting himself of all his worldly possessions. All the poor people of the town were invited and called into the sanctuary where Beckett had arranged on tables all of his material goods, everything that had been an emblem of his success, clothes, shoes, linens, furniture, cash, and gold, And his servants thought he was crazy to be giving all of this stuff away. But Beckett forges ahead and not only does that, he does it with a huge smile on his face. And when all of it is gone and Beckett is left alone in the sanctuary with the empty tables, he turns around and he looks at the altar and he looks above it to the statue of the crucified Christ on the cross And he shouts out to that statue, you, you are the only one who knows what happened here today. They think that this is hard. You are the only one who knows that I feel today like I'm on a holiday. That I've never enjoyed myself so much in my entire life. You are the only one who knows how joyful this is. And how easy it is. The life he once led, the titles and the money and the fun and the frivolity that he used to pursue, all of that was forgotten and left behind. And everything that Beckett used to count as gain, his titles, his houses, his power, and all of his stuff, he found all too easy to give away. He was easily willing to lose it all for the sake of that one thing, of knowing Christ and sharing in his love. That's the message of Paul to the Philippians and the message of Christ to you and to me. So much of our attention is focused on what the world thinks of us and what we think we owe the world seeking value in what we think the world wants us to do or thinks we should be. And not only that, but we also lose so much good energy dwelling in the past, the ways that we have fallen short or the ways that we've been burned and the ways that we have harmed other people, especially people we love. But a door has been opened to us And all we have to do is walk through it. And it seems real hard. But the truth that precious few discover is how joyful it is and how easy it is. So forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, let us press on toward that goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God.